0: Well, welcome. Um, wow. Powerful, powerful stuff. What a, what a good day. Well, th- thanks again for, for all of you coming. It's always a blessing to see you guys here. And uh, today I'm going to be talking about one of the most unpopular topics in Christianity. But I'm up for the challenge by the grace of God. <laughs> so you can pray for me if you want. <clears throat> but um, before I do... Great. Uh, Is that good? Yeah? And then... (laughs) No, no, it's good. Our amazing Kim, who's doing projection. Thank you, Kim. Before I get into that, I wanted to start off by talking about this. And this is a scripture from Isaiah 11, verse 1 to 3. If we can get a hold of this, this is going to make our lives really, really great uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. Now, this is, this is a prof- prophecy about Jesus Christ, okay? And maybe someday I'll develop this more and go into more detail about this particular scripture because it's quite amazing and it's alluded to actually in Revelation, talking about the sevenfold spirit of God. But that's not what I want to talk about today. What I want to talk about today is what I've highlighted. But I'll just read the whole scripture for now. It's Isaiah 11, verse 1 to 3. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from whose roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and the spirit of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight... In the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear. This is Jesus Christ. Will delight in the fear of the Lord. Can you. Now the interesting thing about. What does delighting. In the fear of the Lord look like. Isn't that an interesting thing. But Jesus Christ delighted in the fear of the Lord. And this is something that we have to get a hold of. Because we want to be like Jesus don't we. This is a facet of the Holy Spirit. A major facet of his ministry is the, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Now, on that note, I want to say this, because we want to be Christ-like in all we do. If you were here two weeks ago, I talked about the quest for the radical middle, and I'm going to allude to this a lot, and I'll probably end up preaching a whole message on this, because I think this is so important. But for all intents and purposes, what I talked about two weeks ago, if you weren't here, was essentially... The quest for the radical middle, what I mean by that is staying on the path of life. On the path of life, there's two ditches. On one side, the ditch is lawlessness. And on the other side of the path of life, there's legalism. The devil, ever since, the, actually, you can see this even in the New Testament, right off the bat, the devil tried to get us in error. When I say us, I'm talking about Christians, in one of two ways, in either legalism are lawlessness. And you can see Jesus rebuking them, the Corinthians, for instance, for lawlessness. If you look at, uh, uh, in the book of Revelation with the seven churches, some were getting into lawlessness. Our, our Christian walk, what we have to do is, is by the grace of God, stay on the path of life so that we don't fall into either of these two ditches. The problem is, often what happens is if we have fallen into one ditch, say legalism, and then we finally get set free from it. What happens is often we go, the pendulum swings, and then we fall into lawlessness. And it's a tragedy because I, huh, I see a lot of people, a lot of good friends of mine who are doing this. Who are actually going into lawlessness because they got so sick of religion and of legalism that they just went into the other... And, I, and it's a tragedy because I see where their life is going and it's, it's horrible. Okay? So we have to watch out for either ditch. And then I, made, I, I talked about how do we do this? I gave this scripture. Romans eleven twenty two. Behold then the kindness and severity of the Lord. The kindness and the severity of God. He's both a lion and a lamb. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you'll also be cut off. I'm going to make a broad generalization right now. But especially in in charismatic Pentecostal movements, I would say what happened is, Because the holiness movement, now holiness is awesome, but unfortunately there was a lot of legalism that got entrenched in Pentecostalism because historically a lot of the people who were in the holiness movement before the Holy Spirit fell in 1906 embraced the Pentecostal movement, which is great. The problem is a lot of legalism got in, so they were really concerned about externals, about how you dressed, blah, 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 really got into legalism. What happened then is the charismatic move came in the 1967, the 60s, and people got a revelation of the kindness of God, right? How much he loves us, okay? So um, that was great because we needed that. We really needed that correction because Christians got too far into legalism. Now, I would say for the most part... Since the 60s, in, their, in our stream of Christianity-ish, right? I'm talking broadly now, charismatic, charismatic in particular. We've emphasized the kindness of God to such an extent that we've totally neglected the severity of God. Almost completely. And the problem with that is, what I said, the ra- how you stay on the radical middle is beholding both. Both the kindness and severity of God. If you neglect, for instance, the severity of God, you can get into lawlessness. Now, now I have this under here. The kindness of God keeps us out of legalism. The severity of God keeps us out of lawlessness. Another way of putting it is the love of God. The revelation of his unconditional love keeps you out of legalism because he loves you no matter what the fear of the lord the fear of god keeps you out of lawlessness the problem is we have a whole bunch of christians who are in lawlessness now cuz they can't reconcile how an unconditionally loving god could send people to hell so what they're doing is twisting scriptures and saying god doesn't send people to hell how can a loving it's human rationale how can a loving god send people to hell so now we have a ton of Christians who don't even believe in hell anymore. We have a ton of Christians who are embracing universalism, and I 'm getting a little ahead of myself, but but the point is this is to uh, this is a major error that needs correction, a major error because there's a ton of people, and i 'm going to talk about more of this next probably next week, who think they're saved, but they 're not, because of destructive destructive doctrines that are Coming out of this, God is lo- so loving that there's no more judgment. There's no more eternal punishment. And so we have a ton of people who are into lawlessness now to an unhealthy degree. And the consequences of that are eternal. Because you guys, if you've been here for a few weeks, I'm on a series of eternity. So it's inevitable that we have to talk about this stuff. What I wanted to say is it's the radical middle to embrace both. And it's almost impossible for the human mind to reconcile these things. How can a loving God send people to hell? Because he's also a just God. He's also merciful. So it's hard for us to reconcile these seeming contradictions, though they're not contradictions. He's perfect. And I think what's happening is, how prideful is it to think that we're more compassionate than God? That's what you're really saying when you say, oh, no, hell doesn't exist, because if I was God, I wouldn't send people to hell, because my idea of love is this, that I'm more compassionate than God, is what we're implying by that. It's arrogance. It's arrogance because it is fundamentally in scripture that God is also just and he's also severe. Now, I have a great psalm to show us this is what God delights in as if we embrace both. Psalm 147, 11, The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Both, right? These are the ones God delights in the ones who embrace both. The fear of the Lord and his unfailing love. And thank God that I already said this, we are rooted in the Father's heart in this movement, and that is foundational. But I'm seeing a lot of people, friends of mine, how can a loving God send people to hell are getting way into error, and I'm concerned for their souls. I'm concerned for their souls. So we need to, as Christians, if we're going to stay on the path of life, to embrace both and to be like Jesus, who delighted in the fear of the Lord. We need to learn how to delight. Now, what does that look like? That is a hard thing to understand. But last week, if you were here, I talked about An encounter I had the first time I read the book, The Final Quest by Rick Joyner. I had this supernatural encounter of the fear of the Lord for at least a couple days, I think. It's like the tangible fear of the Lord. Then the next day at church, uh, and there's a couple other times, but in particular, I remember I was drunk in the Holy Spirit. I forgot to say in the Holy Spirit last time. So whenever I say drunk, and I'll try to always say in the Holy Spirit, but if I don't, just assume it's the Holy Spirit. Because I'm not into drinking alcohol and getting drunk like that, okay? Just so you know. But I remember praying, Lord, it's hard to understand because I was joyful and drunk and also had a tangible experience of the fear of the Lord. And I was asking him about this. And you know what scripture gave me? The one I quoted before, Isaiah 11, verse 3. Jesus delighted in the fear of the Lord. It's it's hard for a human rationale to understand. I'll give you another example that I remember. This is offensive, what I'm about to tell you, I think. It's hard to understand this. I remember reading this book, uh, uh, it was called The Toronto Blessing. I I forget who wrote it, it was someone from the UK, and like they wrote it in like '94 when the revival was just hot and like just happening, and telling the stories of like how everything came about is really neat. And he's talking about Rodney Howard Brown. How many of you've Rodney, yeah, okay, great. And uh, and he was really the catalyst of the joy revival, if you want to call it that. And and one time he was preaching in Lakeland, Florida, I think this was in '93, this is before Toronto and he was preaching on hell and people were getting the joy of the lord holy laughter during a preach on hell <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah wow god isn't really concerned about offending people apparently now which i've preached on before i guess and i think but let me say this We want to embrace the fear of the Lord, because like I said earlier, Jesus did, but not only, he was our model, but not only that. Do you guys, some of you, were you here in September when I talked about our prophetic history? Okay, if you're not got sermon archives, any of these messages I allude to, we'll, if you want, email and we'll send you the MP3s or whatever. But I I just want to say this, because I already talked about this, but I want to remind you about this prophetic crazy, amazing prophetic word Bob Jones and a bunch of people in the 80s had about the end time revival is going to be the opposite of what happened in the book of Acts. So in the book of Acts, the wind came, the fire came, the wine came. The end time, he said, in 10 years from now, this is 1984, the wine's going to come of the spirit, then the fire, then the wind. So we've experienced the wine. The next one is the fire. What does the fire look like? What does the, I'm guessing there is an element of the fear of the Lord. I'm not guessing. I know there's prophetic words about the next move is going to be holiness, fear of the Lord. How many of you, have, uh, I alluded to that in that sermon too, Carol Arnott's dream about, that she had in the last few years. Did anyone hear that? <clears throat> fear of the Lord. <laughs> The glory's coming, the fear of the Lord is coming, and people are going to run out of the church if they're not right with God. It is, Pensacola kind of had this in the 90s. It's kind of ironic, wasn't it? You had the joy revival happening at the exact same time, the (laughs) Pensacola revival, and that was like, get saved, you know, fear of the Lord. But I don't necessarily think it's going to exactly look like that. But what's interesting is Bob Jones was told that, and others, that the wine revival is going to... Keep continue until the end, until Jesus returns. So the wine's going to be happening still when the fire comes. So maybe that was a foretaste in those Rodney Howard Brown meetings of what it's going to look like, maybe. The point is, we have to learn how to delight in the fear of the Lord. Okay? Now, I'm saying that to say this. If he comes in that way, I want us to be ready, and I want us to be delighting in the fear of the Lord and not rejecting the move of God because it looks different than what we're used to. Especially in our movement. Okay? So, there's your psalm for that. 147. Okay, so yeah. Thank you, Kim. No, uh, uh, I should move on. Now, I, I talked about this scripture last week. And I'll probably use it a lot. Because it's 2 Corinthians 5, 9, 11. I'll just read it. Talking about the judgment seat of Christ. We're talking about eternity. So, we make it our goal to please him, God whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what's due for the... <clears throat> what's due us for the things done well in the body, whether good or bad. Look at the very next verse. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We're talking, when we talk about eternal judgments, there's always an element of the fear of the Lord. If you guys remember when I talked about Ecclesiastes 11 through 14, he says the same thing. That God's judgments are eternal, we can't change them so that people will fear him. Okay, so when we're talking about these things, inevitably, inevitably, we're going to, some of us, hopefully, will experience the fear of the Lord and it's a good thing. Let's learn to embrace it. And if he's correcting us, then let's embrace that rather than running away from it. Because it's a good thing. Okay, And and I'll probably, we'll see, preach a message on that maybe. Because there's so much on the fear of the Lord. Old and new covenant. So the next verse, Hebrews 6. Now I said this a couple times. I'm using the amplified version this time. Okay, so therefore let us get past the elementary stage in the teachings and doctrine of Christ. The elementary school stuff. Christianity 101. Okay, I already went on in this in previous week, so I won't this time. But just remember, elementary, advancing steadily toward the completeness and perfection that belong to spiritual maturity. Let us not again be laying the foundation... These things he's about to list are the elementary teachings of Christ, and they're the foundation of Christianity. Okay? So laying the foundation of repentance and abandonment of dead works, dead formalism, and of faith to, um, sorry, and of the faith and abandon oh, sorry, faith by which you turn to God with teachings about purifying, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment and punishment. This is the Amplified Version. Now, of course, I have those two highlighted because I'm talking about those now, okay? Now get get this. These are all matters of which you should have been fully aware of long, long ago. I'm gonna ask you guys this, and you don't have to answer, but I'll have a raise of hands. When is the last time? You can flip the slide, Kim, you heard a sermon on hell? Think about this. When's the last time you heard a sermon on eternal punishment? How many of you have been years? How many of you have never heard one? The, I think that's the majority. Why don't you all put up your hands? Uh, uh, everyone who, it's either been years or never heard one. Most of us. Christianity 101. Why is this being neglected in the church? Do you know why? Because of, there's a lot of reasons why. One is political correctness and we're scared of offending people. This is the gospel. Some call it the dark side of the gospel. It is the gospel. It's but but we as Christians treat it like our drunk relative, who we hide in the back room when we have guests over. It's like as soon as hell comes up, oh oh, mm, trying oh yeah, but or whatever, trying to we're it's like we're ashamed. We're ashamed, and so we try and hide it. We try and ignore it. We cannot ignore it. We cannot ignore it. Jesus talked about hell constantly. The church, now this is interesting. Up until the late 1800s or so, the church universal embraced the doctrine of hell, eternal punishment. I'm talking Protestants, This is after the Protestant Reformation. Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, you name it, centuries. The church universal believed in hell. Why? Because it is clear in the Bible that it exists. It's not, uh, it wasn't until about the end of the, the Enlightenment came. It's like the movement of skepticism. Then the Romantic movement came on its shoulders, infiltrated the church, Now, most of the church, I would think now, either doesn't believe it. Now, you hear of that. There's churches I know, and I won't name them. They say, we don't believe in hell. They either don't believe it, or they rationalize it, or they say, it's not actually eternal. Clearly eternal. I'm going to show you a ton of scripture on this, because it's clearly eternal, and it clearly exists. It's it's weird to me how people rationalize it away. Now, either you believe the Bible or you don't. And there's, there's a shift towards universalism. In the, I'm talking about evangelicals now. I'm not talking about mainline. I'm talking evangelical Christians, right, are starting to believe hell doesn't even exist. Right? So there's a shift towards universalism. What's universalism? It's that eventually, no matter what, everyone's going to end up in heaven. And that is So off base, it's not even funny. You have to ignore so many scriptures from Jesus' lips to to come up with that. How do they do that? Arrogance. Because I'm more compassionate than God. If I was God, I would not do this to people. Right? That's what they're saying. You know, the movements that happen in the, the revivals and the missionary movements that we all know of, the prayer and the 1700s, 1800s that went up and resulted in the awakenings and the missionary movements from the Moravians, you know what fueled their prayers was agony, agony over the thought that people are going to hell. The fruit of that were tremendous, tremendous revivals and missions movements that swept the earth. Are we now saying they were off base Because what's happening now is people are comfortable in their sin because they're neglecting the severity of God. And they're saying God doesn't do that. Unfortunately, if you believe that, I have sad news for you. He does. Because he's just and true. So we need to learn how to embrace the unconditional love of the Father And the fear of the Lord. If we don't, we're going to get in one of the two ditches. If we just embrace the severity of God, we're going to get into legalism. No way. My concern is, like I said, because of the particular leanings and movements that we're probably mostly influenced by, charismatic, kindness of God has been emphasized, which is awesome. But people are scared of legalism. So they don't even talk about works. Lord, have mercy. God is a just God, and we need, to know, we need to learn how to fear him and to embrace his unfailing love, okay? So, so I'm saying that um, because, <clears throat> if you'd move on, Kim. <clears throat> Sorry, there's a lot of text here. I'll just read it. The Bible teaches that every individual without the saving grace of Jesus Christ will be forever condemned and spend eternity in the lake of fire. This is a hard message, and I don't want to. I'm not. It's not like I. (laughs) I'm just being obedient. Okay, it's not like I'm like yes. I get to talk about hell. No way. There's a lot. There's a. This is. There's a lot of resistance talking about hell. Let me tell you when you're in my position right now. A lot because of political correctness, and all these things. But I want to be a lover of the truth. I don't I don't want to be as fear of a fear of man and of offending people especially when it's clear biblical doctrine from the lips of Jesus Christ. These are unpopular scriptures, but let's why don't we make them popular again? You know people like, I say this in the second point. This is one of Jesus' elementary teachings. I gave you Hebrews chapter 6, verse 2. Jesus discussed how frequently much more than you hear from the pulpits today. Right? And it's a tragedy because this is the gospel. And people are scared of offending people. So we have these seeker-sensitive, nothing wrong, But seeker-sensitive, if you're ignoring the truth, it is wrong. Churches that are allowing people to be comfortable in their sin. I don't want to stand before God one day and him say, you know how many souls went to hell because you wouldn't tell them the truth? Is that love not neglecting to tell them the truth? That is not love. That is not love. That is not compassion. It's the opposite, in fact. Knowing that people are going towards eternal condemnation and punishment and I'm just scared I'll offend them so I'm not going to say anything. No way. I don't want any of us to stand before God one day with that hanging over us for eternity. That if we weren't so cowardly, you know, there's a scripture I'm going to quote later. It says the first people being thrown in the lake of fire are the cowardly. The cowardly. The cowardly. We don't want to be a bunch of cowards who are ashamed of the gospel. And we're going to be held accountable for what what we did with the truth. And we want to be good stewards of the truth, don't we? So sometimes there's going to be hard messages. They are hard. No one wants to hear this. I got the fear of the Lord so many times preparing for this message. Right? So Jesus didn't describe the torment and the fact that it was never-ending he didn't see it as a lack of compassion, did he? No way. He's the personification of love and truth, and he had no problem talking about hell. Because he loves us, right? He saw it as an essential, essential to reaching us as the good shepherd. Okay? His addressing and teaching on hell was motivated by love. It's not the opposite of love. He's motivated by love. Since all he did and taught was out of a heart of compassion, and we know that, right? Because he is love. God is love. He doesn't want anyone to go to hell. And I'll show you scripture. He doesn't want anyone to. It's our choice. Now, if people don't know it's their choice, how are they going to make the right choice, right? We have to make it clear. This is what's going to happen if you don't repent, right? This is what's going to happen. So question. Are we doing the best service to people today by not mentioning hell from our pulpits? Is that true love? I don't think it is. I really don't think it is. We need to shout what Jesus shouts. We need to whisper what he whispers, right? And unfortunately, often we're doing the opposite. We're shouting what Jesus is whispering and whispering what he's shouting. And it's a tragedy. So I don't want to be a... a, I just want to speak the truth. And I know everyone here is hungry. those you wouldn't be here. And we want to be lovers of truth, don't we? we want to, that's what it says. If those who endure the end are, they're the ones. they're not the ones who are just going to mentally assent to truth. They're going to be lovers of truth. So we want to be those who are counted worthy and as lovers of the truth. Now, I have this scripture from Romans 1. This is Paul talking. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. In the same breath, as him saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. It sounds to me, not being ashamed of the gospel is telling the full truth. And Paul does this in the second, right after he says, I'm not ashamed. The wrath of God, the wrath of God is like a taboo subject in, our, in, in most churches, isn't it? God doesn't judge anymore. I hear that from tremendously impactful, world impactful uh, churches that say God doesn't judge anymore. I fear for them. What's, oh, God doesn't like that anymore, it's the new covenant. This is Paul the Apostle talking about God in the New Testament. Like, you know, I don't know how people get rid of these scriptures, it's just like, oh no, God doesn't, whatever. Okay, so since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them for since the creation of the world God's invisible qualities His eternal power His divine nature has been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse and then he goes on and 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 on read Romans 1 and 2 if you want to see about people sinning immorality God giving it over them over to that right all these things. My question is, are we ashamed of the gospel? Could we, like Paul, say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation. The wrath of God is coming to the wicked to judge them if they don't get saved. I think we, as a church, would have to plead guilty to being ashamed of the full gospel in this day and age. I think we would. You see, the problem is, like I said... The kindness and the severity of God, we need to embrace both. The problem is, if you look in this, in this Bible, the end times, the problem isn't legalism in the end times. What is it? It's lawlessness. It's the man of lawlessness. It's an increase in wickedness, right? So if all we're shouting is the kindness of God, and we're saying, oh no, God doesn't judge anymore, what do you think the fruit of that's going to be if we're living in times of lawlessness and wickedness? It's going gonna, it's gonna to add to that it's going to fuel it in fact so we need some of those people who are willing to stand up for the truth and say regardless of the consequences of our political incorrectness of saying yeah if you continue in that lifestyle you're going this way that we would be upholding the truth in these times especially in these times because if you know anything about the Great Awakenings, Jonathan Edwards, how many of you know what sermon sparked the Great Awakening? <laughs> this sermon wouldn't be preached today. Hands, wait, what is it? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's what sparked the Great Awakening, saved 20% of the American population. <laughs> Imagine anyone, would anyone even touch that message today? I don't I don't think so. I don't hear anyone talking about it. I shouldn't say that. Hardly anyone. There are some. So are we ashamed? And I just we should ask ourselves that. Are we ashamed of the full gospel? Are we just gonna sugarcoat it and just tell people what they want to hear? Or do we we need to, you know. Now I'm not saying like this is the thing. Hellfire brimstone preaching is somehow we've relegated it to, like, redneck fundamentalist preachers from the backwoods hills of Arkansas, (laughs) right? It's like, oh, he preached house, oh, what? It's like, wow, he's backwards, right? That's how, it's the attitude. Like, oh, that's somehow debased Christianity. Like, oh, those fundamentalist rednecks are preaching that stuff. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, preached that stuff. In fact, where do we get those terms from? He's the one who coined the term eternal punishment. He's the one who talks about hellfire and brimstone. He is not a redneck fundamentalist from the backwoods of Arkansas. He's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the personification of truth and love. Right? (laughs) So we don't want to go there. We don't want to even subtly get into this mindset that if you're telling people the truth, you are off base And right? No way. There's a balance, of course, right? Like, I'm not saying it's necessarily wise to go on street corners and be like, you're going to hell. No way. I don't think necessarily, unless the Holy Ghost leads you to, I should say, that that's necessarily effective, okay? My point is we need this in our theology in order to stay on the path of life. And we need to tell this sometimes to others and not ignore it like our drunk relative in the closet or in the back room when guests come over. So so you can either write Jesus off as a liar because he talked about this constantly or frequently. Pick and choose what teachings of his you're going to believe, which is what people are doing. But the bottom line is hell is a real place and we need to talk about it. Right, I'm not ashamed to talk about it, even though it's a hard message. And let's embrace the fear of the Lord. Right, if he's coming to the fear of the Lord, let's just let's practice a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't necessarily endorse this movie, but who's who's seen a, a Unusual Suspects? It's like 20 years ago. Okay, good. Don't necessarily watch it. I'm not. But this quote is great. He says it like three times in this movie. Don't watch it. <laughs> Unless you want to, but unless the Lord leads you, I should say. It's not like, whatever, it's not that bad, but whatever. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he did not exist. Isn't that the truth? How many of you have read Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis? Oh, you should read it if you haven't. It's really just really a smart book talking about the perspective of demons and how they're cloaking people in our rational society to make them believe that the demons aren't doing what they're doing. It's really neat. What I would say, yeah, I think this is true. What I think is a tragedy and what's true in the church, most of the church might believe there's a devil. But I would say the greatest trick the the devil's pulling on the church right now is making us believe hell doesn't exist. And then he's getting people to get into lukewarm Christianity because what does it matter? We're all going to end up in heaven by the grace of God, and then they end up in hell, right? What more effective way to get Christians in hell are people who think they're Christians? oh, I'm saved, right? I said the prayer, but I'm going out drinking with my buddies and sleeping around. Are you really saved? I would really question that if, you're, if the fruit is that. Now, of course, God gives us time and mercy, but my point is, we're allowing people to be comfortable in their sin, and that's not okay. And that's, that's just not okay. I don't think I have to go in more about that. So, what did Jesus say about hell? <clears throat> I'll just read you some scriptures. <laughs> But before I do, this is a really important point. Okay? Just to always keep this in your memory. Second, this is from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. This is important. I urge then, first, this is Paul. First of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved. And come to a knowledge of the truth. All people. That's what he's saying. We should be praying for everyone because God wants everyone to be saved. Right? Is everyone saved? No. But he wants everyone to be saved. We have the choice. Okay? Now, it's funny. No, I won't go there. Interesting how people from the Reformed tradition try and explain this away. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. It's not conditional atonement, the doctrine that I was alluding to a second ago from Reformed tradition. No, he wants everyone to be saved. This, is how, this has now been witnessed to at a proper time. Now, don't, don't go in the other direction where universal say yes yeah, see everyone's saved no he's just saying he wants everyone to say just like he wants everyone to be healed is everyone healed no there's a whole bunch of reasons but i won't go there now but it's the same thing because there's a choice in it i'm talking about salvation there's a choice in it so matthew let's okay what did jesus say matthew 25 41 to 46 this is jesus then he'll say to those on his left depart from me you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels I don't know how people could say that it's not eternal when Jesus himself says it's eternal. But what I want to emphasize in right now is prepared for the devil and his angels. This wasn't God's will. Hell was a place for Satan and his fallen angels, period. Now, humans mess it up in sin like Satan did and if they don't repent and come to Jesus Christ, this is where they're heading to. But the point is, this is never God's intention, that humans would go there. It's for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you did not look after me. They will also answer... Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick and in prison and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Jesus says eternal punishment, right? He's the one who coined that term. So I'll just read some more. God give us grace. <laughs> This is from the Sermon on the Mount. We all know how important the Sermon on the Mount was. Trisha just talked about that last week. You have heard that it was said that people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. The fire of hell. Wow, You fool. Now, I think there's balance to this because Paul clearly says, you foolish Galatians who's bewitched you, (laughs) right? But you see what Jesus is saying here. You're in danger of hell if you go that way. Matthew, this is, again, Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it was said that you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery uh, in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Intense stuff. Matthew 18, 6 to 9. I'm just, and I'm just select, these aren't, I'm, these, this isn't all encompassing. I'm just, I just selected some scriptures about hell. Matthew 18, 6 to 9. Now here Jesus is not talking about just one particular sin like he was in the Sermon on the Mount. Here he's extending it to every sin. In all forms of sin, okay? So if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it'd be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned into the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or feet and be thrown into eternal fire, not temporary fire, like some are saying these days. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. I want to show you Mark 9, 42 to 48. It's basically almost the same as the one I just gave you, with one exception. Well, a couple exceptions. Here he says where the fire never goes out. Okay, But what I want to draw your attention to is the last verse. Okay, so uh, it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown to hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fires not quench. Talking about eternally. The interesting thing is he's quoting Isaiah sixty two twenty four here. And look at this. Now, here Isaiah is prophesying about the age to come after the second coming of Christ. So as the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure from the new moon to another and from the one Sabbath to another. All mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. These are the believers now. Now look what happens. And they will go out and look. We're talking about heaven. They'll go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them do not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched, and they'll be loathsome to all mankind. Apparently, for eternity, we're going to be, according to the scripture and others, I'll show you in a, in a while, we're, we're actually going to be reminded of those who rebelled and be, be able to see them. Isn't that what this is saying? It's interesting and, and kind of weird. Uh, not weird. Sorry, God. Interesting. Okay. Here's, here's just a couple other. This is Jesus talking. This is my point. Jesus is saying this, right? Not some hillbilly preacher in the backwoods of Arkansas. Jesus Christ, his teachings. This is Matthew 13, and I've preached from this chapter before. There's seven parables on the kingdom of heaven. And I'll just talk, I'll give you the highlighted part, because I want to get going. As the weeds are pulled up and burnt in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they'll weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gruesome picture, right? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. like. Oh. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father who, who has ears let them hear. Matthew thirteen forty-seven to 50. I'll just go down to 49. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come, separate the wicked from the righteous, and will throw them in the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I really don't know how people who, who say they're Christians can just say this isn't, there's no hell. Like, this is so clear, isn't it? Anyone, like I said, in the, up until the late 1800s, all the, the universal church believed in hell, right? It's because anyone who's in, who just reads the Bible at face value is like, obviously, <laughs> there is a hell. This isn't right. So, this is intense stuff. But it's all coming out of Je- right, the mouth of Jesus. I already said this in different ways. I just want to remind us, right? This is Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, we got to believe in the truth. We got to believe in what he says. It's no wonder, because of how gruesome this is, that he doesn't want anyone to go into hell. And that's why he keeps telling us, avoid this. Right? Like in Matthew 10, twenty-eight, don't Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. He's talking about God now. Don't be afraid of people. Be afraid of the God who can, who can send you to this horrible place. You don't want to go there. So why is this important? Why is this important? Because you might be like, what? this is, might be the mentality. It's like, well, okay, yeah, hell exists. Maybe we all believe that, hopefully. But what, why, what's the point of talking about it? Why? I already said, because I think there's a deception where people are going to hell and they don't think that they're, they are because they think they're saved. But according to Jesus, this is where it gets really sad. The majority of humanity, the majority of humanity are going to hell. And I'll show you a scripture that says that. Matthew 7, 13 to 14. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. He's talking about the Sermon on the Mount. The highway to hell, the highway to hell is broad. And its gate is wide for the many who choose that way the many not the few right but the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few find it ever find it the minority right that's what jesus is saying isn't it that's why it's important to warn people about this we don't want to just sugarcoat the gospel And think we're doing people a service by not mentioning that there is eternal punishment when we're actually doing them an eternal disservice, potentially. Let's help others find the narrow gateway to life is the point. Right? Because we know this and we're accountable. So we need to be like, hey, look, this is what the truth is. And we need to not ignore it because we want as many people to get on the path of life as possible. So what did other New Testament writers say about hell? This isn't just Jesus, right? Some people try and write off, and this is so sad, write, try and write off Jesus' teachings as Old Covenant. You know what they say? Because it's before the resurrection. That is a doctrine from demons. That is a doctrine from hell. We know that Jesus himself says... That we're going to be judged, right? I talked about this two weeks ago. Judged according to his words in the Sermon on the Mount, for instance. For all of his teachings. That's what we're going to be based, our judgment's going to be based on on Judgment Day. His teachings. Matthew eleven thirteen says that the law and the prophets were up until John the Baptist. Meaning everything after his new covenant. Okay? So... Just a couple of other New Testament scriptures, just in case you, th- you think that. It's Old Covenant. In a similar way, this is Jude 7 and 13. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding town gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer punishment of eternal fire. Verse 13, there are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame. Wandering stars for whom the blackest dark- darkness has been reserved forever. I'm talking about eternity now. Revelation 14, 9 to 12. I'll just give you the highlighted. Verse 10. They too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. Who hears about the wrath of God anymore? They'll be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image. For anyone who receives the mark, Of its name. I'll say this because this is to us, the Christians, hopefully us, all of us. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commandments and remain faithful to Jesus, right? And blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, the Spirit says, they'll rest from their labor, their deeds will follow them. Our deeds matter, people. And hopefully after this series, for those of you, I think I already mentioned, we're in a series, you'll believe me because there's so many scriptures that say our deeds matter. Of course, we're not saved by our deeds. That is a doctrine from demons, but our deeds will be held accountable for and judged based on what we do in this life. Talking about our deeds now. Okay. Romans 2, 5 to 10. Paul stating the principle of final judgment. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourselves for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will pay each according to what they have done. Right? What we do matters. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality will give eternal life. But for those who are seeking, self-seeking, and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. I want to say this. Because of this series, I would be lying to you by omission, by ignoring hell. Okay? I don't want to do that. So this next message, maybe next two or three, might be hard. <laughs> Unless we delight in the fear of the Lord. Let me say this though. I wanna focus way more on heaven, and I wanna preach way more messages on heaven, right, than I do in hell. Okay? So just so you know, we're not gonna be stuck here. In the weeks to come, we are gonna to go to the awesome heaven stuff, okay? But I don't wanna I don't wanna be a liar, and I think that's what it is by just Saying either this doesn't exist or just ignoring it. Okay, I don't. So, 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 to 12. I'll just give the highlighted stuff for time. Verse 8, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel for Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Okay. I'll say this, though. I love this. Remember I talked about the apostolic prayers? Love the apostolic prayers. That's just simply the prayers Paul prayed for people in the Bible, and you can see how he prayed. This is where Paul prays for the Thessalonians. I love this. You can pray this for yourself, or your loved ones. Verse 11, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you, constantly, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may bring to fruition every desire of goodness and every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you and him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 5. <laughs> Jesus, thank you for the word. Okay. Verse 16, I want to say this first, talking about the path of life. You know how you stay on the path of life, really, the Holy Spirit. That's the New Covenant. I love Galatians because it talks about both. It warns us from both ditches, legalism and 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 lawlessness. Right here, verse 16, chapter 5, verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. Lawlessness. Verse 18. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Legalism, right? So it's by the Holy Spirit we stay on the path of life. And someday I'll trumpet that message, okay? Verse 19. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before. This isn't the first time Paul's warning them about going into lawlessness. He's talking to believers, not unbelievers. I warn you, church at Galatia, the Galatian church, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So you better watch out for lawlessness, too. Not just legalism. He just hammers them about legalism up until chapter 5, and it's like, wait, but with that being said, don't go into lawlessness either, because then you won't go into heaven that way, too. Now, verse, now chapter 6 in Galatians. So he's talking about this. Then right after that, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, right? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithless, self-control. Against such things, there's no law. He's still talking about this. This is the same teaching. He ends this teaching right here. Galatians 6, verse 7 to 9. I'm praying that the Lord gives us, uh, gets us to get a hold of this. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please the flesh, from the flesh will reap Destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Notice I showed you 20-whatever, 19-whatever lust of the flesh. Then he talks about through the Spirit. Key point. What we've sown in this life, the way we lived, comes back to us as a destiny. What we've sowed in this life comes back to us as a destiny. Forever. I'm going to give you a couple stories on this. Two weeks ago, and for those of you who weren't here, like I said, you can ask us for the messages. We'll email them to you about this series because there's some fundamental foundational stuff in those first two messages. But I told you a little bit about a story about Bob Jones, and I'm going to tell you a different facet of that that I didn't, didn't tell you that time because it's so relevant to what I'm talking right now. So if you remember, Bob Jones died on August 8th, 1975. Why? Because he got a prophetic word from the Lord about abortion and how it's going to be, it's gonna, abortion's going to happen with saline solution and the pill and all this stuff. This is in the 70s. Talk, gave him a prophetic word about homosexuality being rampant and there's going to be demonstrations and it's going to be in the government and there's going to be a disease, talking about AIDS, that's not going to be curable. And he told him about meth, that there's just going to be a drug. That's anyway. He got all these prophetic words in the 70s. Bob Jones started prophesying about this stuff. No one believed him. A demon visited him and said, "If you keep prophesying about this stuff, I'm going to kill you." And Bob Jones didn't believe him. He said, "No, I'm a believer." I'm paraphrasing. You can't touch me. That night he dies. Goes to heaven. There's two lines. He said, "I was in the line." where there's like three people ahead of him. That's a whole interesting story. But on, there's another line of people going to hell. He said 98% of the people, the world's population were going to hell. That means 2% of people were saved at that time. He said in that line of people going to hell, he said the gods they served in this life, they're going to serve for eternity in hell. He said there were people, he said there's people wrapped in money for instance. That was their God in this life. He said, there was people in whiskey bottles. That was their God in this life. He said, there's people who were wrapped in lust. That was the God they served in this life. He said, there was people who looked like drugs because that was their God on this earth. And he said, they're like going by, like they're wrapped in this and they're going by on this conveyor belt. And he said, it was so horrific. He couldn't even look like he, there was the Lord ahead of him. And he kept looking at the Lord. He's like, ah, oh, like, but every once in a while, he'd look at them and he said what was happening. Every single one of them, they're like on this conveyor belt, like, you know, like at a grocery store. Going by, I wrapped in this, they would see the Lord and say, their eyes would go open and say, it was true. And as soon as they saw him in his glory, they fell into eternal darkness where they're going to serve the gods they serve in this life forever. Fast forward a little bit. Bob, Jesus is talking to Bob. And remember, the question was, did you learn to love? looks at Bob and says, wait a minute, it's not your time. That demon killed you before your time. I want you to go back. Bob didn't want to go back. He's like, it's hard down there. No one believes me. The Lord said, you're a liar. You're telling the people what I told you to tell them. Okay? I'm responsible. For that. All that stuff's coming to pass that I told you about. And it has, hasn't it? But he's like, you know, and Jesus told him this. You know, when you were a Baptist, you cared about people's souls. And he said, I will let you into heaven, but I want you to look into that line. People go into hell one more time and and tell me if you you still want to come in. Bob looked over there and he said, I will go back if I can just save one more soul. I'll go to the cross if I can just save one more soul. And the Lord told him, I don't want you just to save one soul. I want you to impact leaders who are going to help steward the end time revival. And it's a whole thing. The God that they served on this life, they're serving forever. It's intense, isn't it? It's hard to understand, but I'm talking about what you sow in the flesh, right? He lists a bunch of them. What you sow in the flesh is going to determine how you're going to live in eternity. In hell, but also in heaven. Now, I want to read just a little bit from this book. Now, this book, this is called, this, this so impacted me. This specific thing I'm going to tell you about. Now, this is, I told you about the final quest. There's three books. Rick Joyner had all these amazing prophetic encounters in the 90s just a few years ago. I don't know, a couple of years ago actually, he had all these intense encounters like The Final Quest, right? Like the tense encounters. So if you like The Final Quest, you're going to like this book. Uh, it's in the same genre called The Path, okay? Just written, I don't know, a couple of years ago. So in this book, it's a long story, but throughout, he's, he's actually interacting with Elijah the prophet, okay? And whatever your beliefs are in that, whether it's a vision or not, the point is he he was in, in interacting with Elijah throughout. Then, near the end, he has this encounter with Enoch, okay? The thing that impacted Rick the most about Enoch, and there's this whole thing, is how happy Enoch was. Like, joyful. He said he's the most joyful person he ever met, and he was surprised, because you think Enoch could be really intense. So I'm going to read you this, okay, and just listen with your hearts, because talking about hell, and hopefully, hopefully we're all saved, I'm going to tell you about what we sow in this life and packs our eternity forever is relevant to believers, okay? So when, with that, Enoch touched my head, this is after they talked, as if to bless me, nodded and walked off. As I watched him go, I could not help but think he's the happiest man to have ever lived, I have met many joyful people, but none like him. He was the first to find the secret of true joy, walking with God. That's what the Bible says about it, doesn't it? it? Um, There are many who have had qualities that I would like to have, but I have never wanted anything as badly as I did Enoch's joy. I had never felt so drawn to anyone before, so close or so comfortable in their presence. Just a fraction of his joy would make every day wonderful and would help me to make other people's days better. Then I heard a familiar voice behind me. As he is, you can be also, Elijah said. So then Elijah's here now, okay? W- were you here the whole time I was, we were speaking, I asked? I was watching. We work together, so we're always close. And then this is Rick talking. I never thought of Enoch as a shepherd or as one f- so full of joy. I'm really looking forward to getting to know him better, I said. You have much to learn yet from both of us but the joy you see in enoch will not come from seeing enoch but from the way enoch got it walking with the lord the way he did i wanted to ask elijah now no, this is where i'm going i wanted to ask elijah another question but was hesitating he discerned this and said please ask what's on your heart you walked with god too and you were trusted with some of the greatest power he ever revealed through a prophet why aren't you as joyful as enoch i inquired cuz right Elijah's really intense, and he wasn't joyful like that. This is Enoch's answer. I do not mind you asking, and this is important for you to understand. What you become in your life on earth will be who you are forever. Without the carnality, of course. Now listen to this. If anyone on earth realized how much their life on earth impacted their eternity, they would be in pursuit of the fruit of the Spirit more than any earthly treasure or accomplishment. I'm going to read that again. What you become in your life on earth, talking about believers, you will be will be who you are forever, okay, without the carnality. If anyone on earth realized how much their life on earth impacted their eternity, they would be in pursuit of the fruit of the spirit more than any earthly treasure or accomplishment. This verse is in the context when he lists the fruit of the spirit, sowing to the spirit right? The greatest treasure in all creation is love. Love is the foundation of true joy and peace and is the essence of what man was created to be. God is love. And if you walk with him as you're called to, this will be your portion. I walked the earth during, this is Elijah, during difficult and dark times, I walked with God and loved him. But I let the evil of man overshadow the love I should have been growing in. For both God and people. I even delighted in calling fire down on people. It was necessary, but it was not necessary for me to enjoy it. I should have been weeping for them. Jonah had the greatest preaching gift until the Baptist. John the Baptist. I was trusted with the greatest power since Moses. Neither Jonah nor I pursued love the way we should have. The way all should pursue it. If I had loved people more, even the ones I had to confront and bring judgment upon, many of them would not have perished but would have been turned to the Lord instead. Without love, I became self-centered, and what, that is what mo, uh, cost me, so I was not able to finish my commission. Elisha had to finish what I had been called to do. One of the greatest mistakes a prophet can make is to not pursue loving God and loving others more than anything else. I'm going to stop there. What we do in this life... What we sow in this life, how we live in this life is going to impact our eternity forever. Not just those going to hell. I'm talking about Christians now. If we understood that, we would pursue the fruit of the Spirit more than any earthly treasure. And I want to, I want to say that because it's up to us whether or not we're going to do that. Now, I want to, I want to recommend this uh, book. Um, if you go to the next slide, Clem. how many of you read the divine revelation of hell? Okay. Like two people. That's okay. It's pretty intense. This woman in 1976, the Lord took her to hell 40 times, 40 nights in a row and showed her different things of hell. And it's fascinating and horrifying. There's different places in hell, and depending what sin, like I said with Bob Jones, you commit in this life, you're going to be tormented forever accordingly. And Remember that scripture in Luke 12 where I said, those who know the Lord's will and don't do it and don't get ready will get beaten with many blows, and those who don't know the Lord's will and don't get ready will get beaten with few? He's talking about hell. And there's people who were preachers who are in the worst torments in hell because of the revelation they had of Jesus and how they lived and rejected him fascinating book. We have no excuse because you can read it for free. I have the uh, uh, link down there. In fact, you can listen to it for free. I, I listened to it. I never. This is years ago. I didn't read it. You can go to iTunes. Just type in on the store Mary Kay Baxter or Divine Revelation Hell. It's a two-hour thing, and you can just listen to it. Or you can go to this webpage, read it, listen to it, whatever you want. What's that? Oh, the webpage is down there. So I... Uh, probably every month I'll send archives, and you could get it that way, or just email me if you want it. But if you just Google "Divine Revelation of Hell," it'll probably be the first thing. Mary K. Baxter. I highly recommend it. And it, it, after I read it, I was like, I don't want anyone to go to hell. I was like, I want to send people these CDs who aren't believers just to listen to this because it's crazy. It's horrifying. But you know, I, I just for those of you who are interested, I'd highly recommend that. Um, okay. I was going to talk about Hades versus the lake of fire and give you some more scriptural foundation, but I'm going to end on something else because of time. Maybe I'll cover that another time. What about God's mercy? Okay, because I can't end on here. I can't end. What about God's kindness? What about God's mercy? Okay, and what I'm going to show you scripturally, God's patience is his kindness and his mercy. He gives us a whole entire life to choose him. Okay? So this is something to consider. The Lord's patience is beyond comprehension. In Revelation, for example, 20, verse, or 2, rather, verses 20 to 21, we see the Lord even gave Jezebel time to repent. Jezebel. Because he's so merciful. Okay? However, and this is what's interesting, the very patience of the Lord is itself a type of judgment. Look at Ecclesiastes 8.11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Okay? So the wicked interpret the delay of God's discipline as evidence that he's not He doesn't really care about the evil they do. Therefore, they'll fall into increasing depravity. Does that make sense? Like, oh, God's not judging me. I'm getting away with this. must mean he doesn't really care, so I'll keep doing it. That's what it's saying. Only the truly righteous, the righteous in heart, will understand that his patience is his grace. That is his mercy, and that is his grace. Okay, so Psalm 50, 16-23, he says something similar. But God... Says to the wicked, why bother reciting my decrees and pretending to obey my covenant? For you refuse my discipline and you treat my words like trash. When you see thieves, you approve of them. And when you spend your time with adulterers, your mouth is filled with wickedness and your tongue is full of lies. You sit around and slander your brother, your own mother's son. Verse 21. While you did all of this, I remained silent. And you thought I didn't care. Right? He's saying the same thing. You thought I didn't care because I was silent. But now I will rebuke you, listing all of my charges against you. Repent, all of you who forget me, or I will tear you apart and no one will help you. But giving thanks is a sacrifice that truly honors me. If you keep my path, to my path, the path of life, I will reveal to you the salvation of God. Right? I'm going to show you Revelation 2.20. This is Jesus giving, giving Jezebel time to repent. But she didn't. There comes a time, right, when the judgment comes. Up until then, it's God's kindness and patience and mercy. Okay? So, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual morality, into the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality but she's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways, right? There's always repentance. He's giving us a chance in this life, in the time of grace and favor, we have a chance to repent. That's his mercy and his kindness, I will strike her children dead. Then all of the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Talking about your deeds again. So something to consider. God's patience is there so we can repent. I already said that. We are told in 1 Corinthians 11.31, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. He's allowing us to judge ourselves now so that he won't have to judge us and bring this on us, okay? So it's better to humble ourselves and repent than to have him judge us. The Lord will give us time to repent and discipline ourselves so that he does not have to do it. Even so, the patience of the Lord does have its limit. There's a point when he'll bring swift judgment to our sin. So, the point? It's a tragic mistake to ever presume upon his grace. Because for a time, we were able to get away with something. And that's what a lot of people do. They presume, I'm in right standing with God because he's not disciplining me. I would be fearful if he's not disciplining you, right? It says that in Hebrews, that he disciplines those he loves. Romans 2. I gave you the scripture earlier, verse 5 through 9. What I want to show you is this, because a lot of people say, quote this out of context. I'm talking about the kindness of God leading to repentance. Do you know what the context is? Paul talking about God's wrath. Remember I showed you through chapter 1, this is still going on. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, still talking about the wrath of God, eternal judgment. You therefore, this is verse 1 through 11, you have no excuse. For you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself, because you've passed judgment, do the same things. Now, we who know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth, so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Verse 4. Or... Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? Remember I was talking about how God's patience, that's what his kindness and mercy is. Do you show contempt for his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Remember what I just said? God's time, his patience, is his kindness. That's what he's saying. Are you showing content? Because his kindness is there. His patience is forbearance so that you would repent. You see that? A lot of people take this out of the comments and be like, you shouldn't talk about hell or judgment because you talk about God's kindness. That's what to repentance Look at the context. This is in the midst of Paul talking about judgment and anger and wrath. Look at the very next verse. But because of your stubbornness... And your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When it's his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and mortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be a wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Do you see that? Contextually, is he saying, don't preach judgment or anger or wrath because it's the kindness that leads to repentance? No way. No way. He is saying God's kindness Is his patience and his forbearance that's giving you time to repent while you can. That's God's kindness in this context. So, what do we do? What do we do in light of all this? (laughs) Okay? What do we do? What will we do with the time God has given us? What will we do with the time God has given us in this life that's nothing, eternally speaking, time-wise? It's a vapor. So, this is important, and I want to end... Giving you this, remember, I started on this and I want to end on this. Jesus never came to condemn us. He came to save us. That's straight from John 3.17. Hell was not meant for humans. It was meant for the devil. That's Matthew 25.41. It is his will that none should perish, but that all should come to salvation. That's 1 Timothy 2.4. Time is short and it's God's patience and mercy. It is great. We need to declare God's saving grace while we can, while the time of favor is here. So that people can repent. Now remember I started off in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, 11. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due as for the things done well in the body, whether good or bad. Since then we know it is to fear the Lord. That's part of it. We, need to, we try to persuade others. What we are, so is plain to God, and I hope that it's plain to your conscience, right? You see that. The fear of the Lord is part of it, how we persuade others. He's talking about how to get people saved, okay? So we know what it is to fear the Lord, knowing judgment's coming, knowing that we have to give an account to God. We try and persuade others not to go that way and to go unto salvation. Look at what he says right after this. This is where I'm ending. This is right after, right, in verse, starting in verse 14. There's one scripture before, uh, before but verse 14. For Christ's love compels us. The fear of God And the love of God compels us to persuade others. You see that? It's both. Not just his love. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all. And therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message. This is our part now. The message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, all of us, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The message of reconciliation. That's the part we play. Preaching the full gospel. Living in the love of God, the fear of God, knowing we have to give an account for our lives, right? We need both. So, ha, I just want (laughs) to pray. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah, I just want to end by praying and asking the Lord just to, to help us with this message of reconciliation. Father, I, ah, whoa, thank you for the fear of the Lord. God, help us embrace it. Thank you, God, for your grace to endure difficult messages, <laughs> but help us give us the grace to preach them. Help us to stand for the truth. Help us to be lovers of the truth. Help us to be Christ like and know what it is to delight in the fear of the Lord. Help us to fully embrace the unconditional, unfailing love of God and also the fear of God so we can stay on the path of life. Lord, I ask that you just continue to reveal your ways in our hearts so that we're going to live this life in a way that's going to impact not only this life but eternity. That there's not going to be 98% of people going to hell, but that's going to be cut into whatever (laughs) we can get it at. That's not the majority. Help us, God. We know that you want everyone to be saved, clearly. And so I ask you, Father, that you give us the grace to help us share the gospel so that people will come to the knowledge of the truth, will embrace the saving knowledge and salvation of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I just pray for anyone today who's felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit in any capacity that you enable them to come to terms with whatever it is you're convicting them of and to repent. And I ask for the supernatural grace to walk out whatever it is you're asking them and convicting them to walk out. And God, I just thank you. Whatever the next move of your spirit looks like, we want to embrace it. And so I just ask for the grace, not to reject it if it looks different, but that we'd fully embrace it and that we would be counted worthy of the calling you've given us. So, Father, I just thank you for your message of eternity. And I just ask, Lord, that you continue to reveal more of this to us so that we can live that life worthy of you. In Jesus' name, amen. So.